Hello and welcome to this episode of How To Be Bold. If you're anything like me, you absolutely devour interviews with ambitious and successful women. And I'm always interested to know what their secret is. Is it getting up at 5am and working their ass off or sometimes just sheer luck? It is, of course, different things for different people. But one trait has stood out to me that all the women I admire possess. They're bold. I'm Emma Dean and I'm going to be exploring how to be bold with women who, for me, epitomise that very word. Whether going for a promotion, leaving a secure job to pursue a dream career, overcoming a trauma, or standing up for themselves or others. In their careers and professional lives, they've taken risks, been confident and courageous. And we've all had times when we've looked back on a situation and wished, if only I'd been more bold. So we'll be exploring those times too, and what we can learn from them. I'm excited to introduce you to Francesca Trotman, the Managing Director and Founder of Love the Oceans marine conservation project based in Mozambique. With a master's in marine biology, she has always had a passion for marine life. This passion for marine conservation shines through so brilliantly in this episode, especially her love of sharks. It was an absolute pleasure to find out more about why coral reefs are just so important and why you shouldn't care less about what other people think. So maybe you could start by just explaining what led you to setting up Love the Oceans? I'll start right at the beginning. Um, Good place to start. So yeah, so my mum took me to London Aquarium for my eighth birthday and I was pressed up against the shark tank there, like super obsessed with the sharks. The guy that worked in the aquarium, uh, who was just cleaning the tank, picked up a shark's tooth because sharks shed their teeth um, from the bottom and gave it to me and I kept it in a box for like five years I think that was the indicator that I really liked sharks um and then I started diving I learned to scuba dive when I was um 13 okay uh and fell in love with it and that was basically all I wanted to do um that and play guitar and then um, I got to a levels and like universities and like thinking about uni and stuff and the obvious choice for me was marine biology just because that was under the water. I didn't actually research it that much um, at the time, much to my parents' despair, but <laughs> um, I just knew it was marine and biology, so it must be along the lines of what I wanted to do. <laughs> so I uh, did that at uni, went to Southampton, and at the end of my second year, I took a internship in Mozambique, photography, because I do uh, photography as a second job. And uh, while I was doing my internship, I saw my first ever shark killing, i.e. humans killing sharks. Um, and it was really emotional because I've been obsessed with sharks for so long and I devoured like Jack Cousteau and David Attenborough and loads of different books and documentaries, as much information as I could before, well, while, while I was at uni as well. And so, but seeing something in real life and watching it on a documentary or reading about it is very different to when you actually have it right in front of you. So I was really upset and I spent like three days really angry at the fishermen that were doing, the individual people doing the killing of that individual shark. And then I realized that they were just trying to make ends meet and they were just feeding their family. It was just a means to an end. Um, So I realized it wasn't the individuals I needed to be angry at, it was the shark fin industry as a whole. So I wanted to work out how bad the shark fin industry was in Mozambique. The internship was in Mozambique. 
and I went back to university, found a supervisor, took three research assistants out with me the following year and spent four months with the shark fishermen there, learning about the fishing industry and doing my research, my master's thesis on that. And then when I went back to uni, I was writing up my dissertation and I was getting the exact results you would think in terms of the sustainability of the shark fin industry, i.e. it's unsustainable, detrimental effect on the local marine ecosystem and everything like that but I didn't have enough data to publish a paper and because I couldn't publish a paper, I couldn't lobby for legislation change so I couldn't get anything done essentially about the problem that I knew was happening. Um, so I wanted to collect more data and the only way that I could see that that was feasible to do, to build a team, was to start an organisation. So I founded Love the Oceans initially just to continue the shark fisheries research and, but now we've expanded into a lot of different areas. So you're not just sharks? No, not just sharks. That is like my obsession. That's your baby. <laughs> That's my baby. Um, and I still do really love like that area of our research. But now I am learning to love a lot of other areas as well. And now we have like community outreach. The more I read into successful NGO strategies, the more I realised that we needed an educational aspect to it if we wanted like long-term change um, and culturally integrated change as well. Um, in the local community in Mozambique, so um, I yeah started an education um, part straight off the bat, and then every year we've expanded um, different areas of research. So now we do like coral reefs, um, humpback whales, megafauna, so whale sharks, manta rays, ocean trash, as well as the shark fisheries. Um, that I initially started and then we also do our education outreach as well at schools. And how receptive have the local people been there? Do they understand what it is that you're trying to achieve and, and maybe support the objective but not necessarily able to change the ways of working immediately because as you say it would impact their lives so significantly? Yeah, um, the local community are an absolute dream to work with. Um, I love working with them. Um, we work really closely with the elders in the community so you have the the hierarchy is basically you've got the elders, which is like the mayors, and then you've got the sub-elders, the chiefs, the sub-chiefs, the head teachers, the teachers, and then basically everyone else, um, with a few like influential families chucked in there and things. Um, so everything we do, we always check through with the community, and it's usually requested by the community as well, rather than, like we might think something's a good idea, but we'd rather it come from the community. Um, so we have like I have an annual meeting with the elders um, and then we have a 15 year strategic plan with the elders as well and then we have a year on year plan um, so everything we do is with the community we work as a team um, very much so and that's been just like lovely it's been really nice to work with them and was it easy to get in and speak to them and get them on board early I mean there must have been things like language barriers cultural barriers things like that yeah so I was pretty lucky um I one of my friends who works on a boat out there um his brother um Mozambican his brother um speaks really good English and I was looking for someone to work in schools with us um who could speak good English so he introduced me to Pascal his brother and now Pascal's been with us right from the start he's incredible he speaks Batonga which is the local dialect which is an original African dialect so it's not Latin based it is mind-blowing to listen to and really hard to follow but I'm learning it he also speaks Portuguese which is the national dialect and that's obviously a lot easier for me to learn um and then he speaks English and he's learning some Afrikaans as well um, so he's been our main like translator and he is our now our community uh, outreach manager as well so he'll like organize all the meetings and come up with new ideas develop plans um, as well as translate and all the like normal stuff as well 
so yeah been really lucky with that it was pretty easy though getting our foot in the door because there's never been any charities in our area um ever so like there's been like the odd missionary group that's come up from South mm. Africa and things like that but nothing like long term and nothing environmental at all uh, or humanitarian to be quite frank um so when I came like I literally just <laughs> said like my name's Francesca I'm from England <laughs> and this is what like I think would maybe be a good idea here like you could really harness your marine resources and make quite a bit of money and alleviate poverty through ecotourism and save the animals at the same time what are your thoughts kind of thing and it was actually pretty lucky because one of the one of the elders the we work with two different communities Pandani and Ginjata and the Pandani elder he had actually been to Kenya and seen a ecotourism initiative there so he had a grasp of what we were talking about so I kind of mentioned it all at the beginning and he was like yes like this is this is going to be good like we need to do this here definitely 100% on board and I told them that I had like masters in marine biology and that I'd studied things like this and, and knew about it and um, things like that and that our team is ridiculously qualified and all have experience in lots of different countries um, and so he was just like yeah because the education level is really low in our area it's a 50% illiteracy rate 75% in women and most people finish school at the age of 12 so there's just not a skill set there mm -hmm. to harness that power right now um, and it's something we're working to change but obviously any help that they can get along the way they have been very welcoming of and what have been the biggest challenges in kind of setting up your own organisation, especially one that is in a different country? Yeah, um, it's been tricky. So there's obviously been like cultural stuff and learning a new culture, but now we're pretty settled into that. So I actually prefer Mozambique culture to Western culture. It's a lot less um, materialistic, um, a lot more basic, um, which I actually really love. Obviously, the biggest problem is money. It always is with startups, yeah. whether it's a startup or non-profit or a charity. It's always money at the start. Absolutely, and just kind of learning to just ask for money. I used yeah. to kind of run a, a not-for-profit as well, and get, kind of getting used to just being quite like blatant yeah. and not kind of dodging around the subject. It's being British okay thing. saying like, "Hey, we need some cash for this. <laughs> Do you want to give us cash?" Um, that was that was a learning curve. But now I'm pretty okay with it, and now we're like looking at different avenues and things like that. And there are a lot of different doors that open, which you don't even think about, and it's not even something that comes across your mind normally. So you have to do quite a lot of research into like lots of different avenues of funding and, and how to do that. Because um, at the moment, our main source of funding are volunteers, pay to volunteers. So they get work experience mm -hmm. and a diving qualification in exchange for helping out and we train them up with everything that we do. Um, and all of their money goes into the project, and that's how we. Um, like fund our science, fund everything that we do um, primarily and so obviously now it's looking at different avenues of like private donors for the school projects and lots of different things like that. Yeah. Um, so money's been a big problem, cultural boundaries but I mean that's that's pretty much not a problem anymore. It never really was a problem per se, more just like a challenge, something to like acclimatise to basically always a problem being so remote is yeah. really tricky like um the lack of resources can be really challenging if the power's out the power's out there's nothing you can do about it until the government's repaired it and if they don't want to repair it for a week then tough luck you don't get power for a week for a week so that is um yeah that's probably one of the more challenging ones um but our phrase that we always use is we like to make a plan so something will go wrong and we'll make a plan and just make it right for, for as long as we need, like patch it up until, it, until we can get it properly repaired or whatever. And how much time are you actually spending out there? 
Um, I get to spend about eight months a year, eight to ten months a year, trying to get up to ten at the moment. Realistically, it's eight, um, which is pretty nice. <laughs> Very nice, especially yeah. this time of year when the kind of the weather is so awful and it's all a bit miserable. Yeah, yeah. I'm going back out in less than a month now. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, and I am pumped to get back out there and just see everyone again and, yeah, start work. And what are your plans for this year? Um, well... Big question. Um, so we've got our like volunteer programs running. So we've got a lot of students going through. We've got people doing dissertations mm-hmm. and things like that. And then we've got um, a photography group coming through. So we've partnered with Photographers Without Borders, which is a Canadian NGO that their mission is to help other nonprofits and charities with their media campaigns because often startups can't afford to create collateral. Um, so they actually fund photographers and videographers to come out. Um, and do uh, like create collateral so we've had like a lot of videographers and things like that come out with us and Danielle who's the founder and Jeff who's an incredible videographer came out last year and filmed a documentary with us which actually comes out pretty soon amazing Um, yeah so they're sending a whole photography group out with us um, who are doing a workshop and um, that will be really interesting because that's like 12 photographers and then we've got some school trips coming to us We've got our researchers expanding. We've got an intern coming with us as well. We've got someone coming out to do some filming too with National Geographic and uh, another girl coming out to do some filming as well. Um, so we got really like, busy. Yeah, it's going to be crazy, but it's going to be so good. I think I'm going to be in the fetal position <laughs> for like a month after this season. Um, but it's going to be really cool. Yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to it. I'm pumped to like... Oh, and we've got... And we're partnered with Angel Swim London, which is from school in London. And they qualify they sponsor um our swimmers so we teach swimming in the local community like 90 percent of people can't swim in our area and there's a really bad problem with drowning and we take the view that if they can interact with the marine environment safely they're going to be more passionate about it yeah so we do free swimming lessons and angel swim london partnered with us last year and now long-term partnership and adam who's the founder he comes out every year and he runs a workshop with the kids and he qualifies our advanced group as swimming instructors so it gives them oh amazing jobs oh that's fantastic yeah so that's coming that's that's happening for at least two weeks during their during the school winter holidays this year and um, probably like he usually comes out for longer and then works with the advanced kids as well for a bit longer as well um so that's exciting too. really exciting yeah. yeah and it feels like kind of marine conservation and just sustainability generally has become so much more of a kind of a policy area and a topic that the average person in the West would know about and would care about. And you're seeing kind of a lot of corporates um, kind of picking this up as an issue and magazines having kind of partnerships on on kind of this topic. Does it feel like it's getting easier to kind of to win people over and to to lobby for change? Um, I think so. There are a multitude of environmental issues within the marine space. Um, And at the moment, everyone's raving about plastics. Like, you can't move for someone telling you about plastics and the use of plastics, Um, which is really great because that is an environmental issue that is an immediate one. And it's quite easy to solve in terms of you just stop creating plastic. And and there's so many alternatives as well. So it's not... And they're they're quite cheap alternatives Mm -hmm. and ways that your everyday consumer can reduce their consumption of plastics. 
Um, but there are a, a whole heap of other problems. And I think the kind of outreach like Blue Planet has um, with David Attenborough, I mean, everyone loves him. He's a national treasure. Amazing. That series <laughs> was just so hard hitting. Yeah. And um, Blue Planet, Blue Planet 2, all of those kind of documentaries, they really do bring um, the marine space to the public mm-hmm. eye because your average person living in the center of a city doesn't interact with the sea very often. So it's something that they don't potentially think about very often. Um, and so it's such having... a small part of the sea that we do interact with as well, just exactly. as the average person. You know, it's a few metres away from the shoreline if you're having a brave paddle, especially yeah. if you're in the UK. Yeah. Most people would never scuba dive, would never actually go and explore the, kind of the depths of the ocean. And, and yeah. as, a, as a kind of a humanity is still exploring a lot of it. Yeah, we know more entity, about the moon than we do about which the Which is insane ocean. if you think about it. Yeah. It is, it is really scary, <laughs> crazy. But yeah, so I think, I think it is becoming uh, definitely easier. More people are aware of like why the ocean is important on a very basic level as well. Um, so it's easy to talk to people and get them to understand it a bit more. Like it used to be you'd talk about it and you'd just get a look that was like, oh, hippie. <laughs> um, and now people will like legit take you seriously and be like, oh, okay, tell me more about that environmental issue. So it's quite an interesting. I mean, I, th- I still think things like global warming and associated like coral reef breakdown, people don't really understand why coral reefs are so important because people just think coral reefs are pretty. <laughs> yeah. And they're like aesthetically pleasing rather than an integral part to how we function as human beings. And I think that people kind of forget that just because stuff's below the surface doesn't mean that it's not really important to act, us actually being able to function. Like one of the stats I always use in presentations when I talk about plastics is that in some parts of the ocean, there is 60 times more plastic than plankton. And plankton supplies the oxygen for one in five breaths that we breathe on the planet. So you can imagine oh 60 gosh. times as much plastic as plankton is insane like that's an insane amount of plastic and there's a whole heap of issues with just things like plankton alone just looking at plankton and the effect that humans are having on the oceans um, and people just don't know about it because well, there's a lack of education yeah. right if you think about kind of when we were at school you know biology and geography lessons and just education generally it was it it, it just didn't focus on any of this stuff. Mm. You know, you, you learnt kind of some hard facts and figures about rocks. That's basically what I remember, and I'm sure rocks are very important. Yeah. But you don't you didn't learn much about actually the environment in which we're all living in and, and the importance of specific aspects of it. Yeah, I mean like in my biology class we barely touched marine stuff. Barely. I had two teachers. Um one teacher was very supportive and encouraged me to like look outside of the classroom Mm. and look at like do my own research and Mm. and, um, I interacted with her really well and she was amazing and supportive. My other biology teacher (laughs) hated me and told me I would never have anything to do with biology and that I would get a D in A level and I got an A, thank you very much. Amazing. (laughs) Um, And he was terrible. So I think there's also like the amount um, a school encourages you and also that individual teacher can really make a difference. Like I had two geography teachers that were awesome and they were really supportive and that really helped me as well. So having supportive teachers, people, like people that do believe in you, um, really help. And for me, like having people not believe in me is also works for me. I'm the personality type that I'll take that and turn that into, okay, well, I'm going to prove you wrong. Um, but you also have to recognise your own personality type and see yeah. if that's going to... And even when you don't have kind of teachers who are necessarily kind of supportive, having kind of role models like yeah, yourself definitely. and that kind of young people can look to and think, okay, this is a completely non-traditional career path. 
Yeah. But it's incredibly valid and rewarding and it's something that I can do and it's going to take a little bit more self-sufficiency to kind of, you know, in your early 20s decide, right, I'm going to move to another country and set up a, an NGO, but yeah. I can absolutely do it. Definitely. I think for our organisation, Sylvia Earle is just an incredible ambassador, marine ambassador. She's one of the first pioneers. She's like Jack Cousteau, but female, and she's so cool. Um, she runs an organisation called Mission Blue. Um, we're working with them on uh, um, a thing called Hope Spots, uh, which is launching like areas of the world that are, have like significant marine value, and where our area has been recognised as one. Um, so we're working with them, and she was a, yeah, a very she is a very inspirational role model. So in terms of like having people to look up to, I think in the marine in the science space and STEM in general, there's a lack of females, um, like hugely, massively underrepresented. Um, so it's cool to have female role models to look up to um, and kind of yeah aspire to be like. I think Sylvia L is really important in that space. Couldn't agree more. So turning to some of the kind of the questions that I ask kind of all the guests on my podcast. Firstly, what does being bold mean to you? Tricky question. Um, I think being bold to me means taking that step that you're not sure about. Um, I envisage it as jumping off a cliff and just being <laughs> like, okay, this is happening. <laughs> um, because I remember when I first started the organization, there were like steps in doing it that uh, really freaked me out. I remember setting up the website and putting that live and being like, <gasps> and I had to have three days of panic and then I would be okay. And then um, registering the company, three days of panic and then I'd be okay. Taking my first deposit, three days of panic and then I'd be okay. So just knowing and recognizing that growth comes from doing something that you're, is potentially out of your comfort zone. And um, I pride myself on trying to grow as a human being and gain as many experiences as possible. And so does my team, my team's incredible. Um, and each of us really do push ourselves out of the comfort zone. So um, yeah, I think probably pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, forcing yourself to take that step that is a risk, but growth comes from that, so yeah. That's so well put. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. And so just knowing that you, you can do it, but it's not going to be a painless experience. Mm-hmm. I think people kind of often want a bit of an easy ride and expect things to kind of be unflawed as a process, but acknowledging that there will be bumps along the way, but that it's all a learning curve. Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, yeah, you have to like be pre- mentally prepared to work so hard and know that you're going to have to work hard, um, especially in this industry. It's so competitive. Um, you've got to be pretty pretty hardcore um to and and just believe in yourself like i could not say that's my biggest piece of advice people is like just believing yourself like people tell you can't do it i cannot tell you how many people have told me that i can't do what i'm doing and every single time i've just been like okay come back to me in a year when i've done what you're saying i can't do and we'll have another conversation then and the number of people that i've literally i can't even count i think i've been told i can do this by over 100 people easy easy and why do you think that is why do you think people are so negative about people going out and kind of creating these opportunities for themselves or creating something new i definitely think it's more of a reflection on them than what you what they actually think you're capable of they're saying that because they don't think they could do it and if they can't do it then they don't think you can do it Mm. um so i never that's why i never take it as a oh maybe i can't do it because it's nothing to do with me them saying that that is all to do with them Mm. and what's going on in their life and how they feel about do you think it's a generational thing is that is is that how you would kind of identify the people who 
said this to you? No, actually. Some people have been a bit older um, because it's unconventional. Um, but actually that's been more, I don't know, I don't know, I think it, I think that maybe is a little bit of jealousy, mm. um, just being able to go and make a living out of something that I really love when that uh, the type of travel and the convenience wasn't available um, 25 years ago kind of yeah. thing. So, but I think the people my own age, I've actually had more people my own age or similar age, like only 10 years older or something, um, say that I couldn't do it. And I think that is to do with them and, and how adventurous they are and how bold mm. they are and how they're willing to push boundaries or not willing to push boundaries definitely um, and do you think kind of um the internet and kind of social media has been a big kind of aspect of being able to achieve what you have do you kind of use that a lot yeah well? yeah definitely like I think that we would have really have struggled um 25 years ago to do what we're doing now because science communication is a lot easier in terms of reaching the audience you mm. want to reach um and being able to reach as many people with the likes of like Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all the major avenues and YouTube actually like mm. video creation um there just wasn't the level that you've got I mean even in terms of creating content you've got drones now which give you insane aerial footage that you would not be able to get like 30 years ago so it's it's definitely a lot easier I think now oh, I hesitate to say easier it's different but there's more tools available to you to reach a larger larger audience um, so it's still really hard but <laughs> much but easier yeah that's uh, different so you've talked about the worst advice you've been given what's the best <laughs> advice you've been given Oh gosh, I've been given a lot of advice. Our director, Andrea, she's our executive director, she's incredible. She came on board back in 2015 um, as an advisor and then stuck around. <laughs> and um, she's given me a lot of advice over the years. Probably the best pieces of advice she's given me is to care less about what other people think. Um, you can only care about so much in the world and the media and campaigns and adv advertisements in Western culture tell you to care about a lot. Like they tell you to care about your appearance, they tell you to care about what type of makeup you have and what dress you're going to wear and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and learning to not care and ignore that and realise what's important in your life and what you do care about means that you ha have more to give to the bits that you do care about. Um, so yeah, learning to just not care about things that don't matter to me, that are, that are super superficial, but I didn't realise that they were superficial for a really long time. I think that's amazing advice. I yeah. think it's something that we could all take on in this kind of, even in this world of kind of like mindfulness and, mm. and just trying to appreciate yourself and what you have a little bit more in your life. Yeah, I learning think. to like love yourself and then that confidence radiates and that is really useful in every aspect. Like at a networking event, people want to talk to you because you seem like the person that knows what's going on. Um, and that's how you make really good, useful business connections as well. Brilliant. Well, on that amazing advice, I think we'll <laughs> leave that there. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. No problem. <laughs> Thank you so much to Francesca for joining us. I don't know about you, but her passion left me wanting to learn so much more about the impact that us humans have on marine life and ultimately ourselves as a civilization. We have some equally fantastic women joining me over the next few weeks, so I do hope you'll listen in again. And I'd really love to hear from you. If you've got any feedback, please do rate and leave a review. And you can also follow us on Instagram at howtobebold. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening in and till next time.